to the UIAAA Connection podcast. The UIAAA would not be able to broadcast this podcast without the support of our business partners. Thank you to all the gold and silver business partners of the UIAAA, BSN Sports, and our contact, Jeremy Macy. Final Forms AMP with contacts, Julie Renner and Clay Burnett. Granite Canyon Wealth and our contact, Megan Palazzo. Jostens with contact, Molly Shaheen. NCSA, next college student athlete and our contact, Paul Putnam. VNN Varsity News Network and our contact in Utah, Jason Jones. Thanks again to all of the gold and silver UIAAA business partners. Welcome back to another edition of the UIAAA Connection. I'm your host, Mark Hutch Hunter, and today we are thrilled to have with us Pete Shambo, who is calling in not from his home in New York, but who is calling in somewhere in Virginia as he's hiking along the Appalachia Trail. And so we will get to that soon enough. But welcome, Pete. How are you? I'm, I'm great, Hutch. Uh, one of my greatest purchases recently was a hairbrush. I had not brushed my hair in 46 days, so it, uh, it was nice to put a brush through it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get, before we get to your uh, stories on the trail, let's, let's take our listeners back a little ways. Growing up, your college days, your high school days, uh, what you participated in sports, how you got involved in sports, and basically what led, led you to be one of the great ADs in the United States. Well, one, thanks for that compliment. I'm not sure that's necessarily accurate, but um, I hope my story to others, at least of my generation. Um, I went to a small school uh, in upstate New York. It, the school's name was Copenhagen in the town of Denmark. Um, and uh, I had 36 kids in my senior class. It was a K-12 building. And um all of us pretty much worked on or lived near farms. And so farming was a way of life there. People would drive their tractors to school, show up in their barn boots, have chafe from the hay mow in their hair type of thing. Um, it was a wonderful place to grow up. I have seven brothers and sisters. Um, so I had a large family and uh, I was influenced first um, because sport was the only outlet in that area there, you know, back then you might get three TV stations if somebody holds on to the antenna on a good day. And um, so I had a traditional mom who would send you outside don't come in until I call you for lunch and then don't come in until I call you for dinner. So we made up games, you know, uh, mm -hmm. a field was dead because we didn't have people or there was a creek involved or any number of things. Uh, my poor mom used to pay for guitar lessons and I'd go downtown and and as soon as they dropped me off and they were out of sight, I'd go up the street and play basketball with my buddies instead. So my poor mom, I put her through um, and she paid a lot of money for those lessons. But uh, but um, I was influenced most by two physical educators in my uh, school and they happened to both be coaches. Uh, one was uh, Jim Buck um, and one was John Johnson. Um, uh, John Johnson was someone who my father knew because his wife had worked summers at a plant where my dad was working. So my dad became a fan of Coach Johnson, who was coaching basketball. And Coach Butts um, was the soccer coach. And uh, uh, in that small school, you had a choice of one sport per season with the exception of the winner. You could either wrestle or play basketball. And so um, literally, we'd have people who would help 
finished chores at the barn so somebody could make the game at night, uh, you know, could go over and help finish milking or whatever. So we'd make the bus. Um, you could have probably robbed just about any house in town on the night of a game that was out of town because it was, you know, it was like French Lake, Indiana. Everybody traveled out and back together as a group. It was that kind. Um, both those gentlemen just had influence on me because they seemed like they loved what they did and they uh, shared that passion with kids. And uh, Coach Butts in particular took an interest in me, um, wanted to know what my plans were beyond school. And of course, at that time, I could barely think about what was the next day going to be, uh, what would I do the next day, let alone, you know, what was I going to do in four years? Ended up uh, leaving high school. Um, I did not have great grades. I was just was not interested in school. I was interested in sports, so sports kept me eligible. Mm -hmm. uh, went to a small college called Morrisville ATC. That was an egg and tech college, two-year school at the time. It's a four-year school now. Went there, didn't know why I was there. I wanted to play soccer, <laughs> and I wanted to go to school, but I didn't know have a clue why I was there. Uh, after a semester, I got an invitation to leave. Uh, because my grades were bad. So uh, I got lucky and uh, a friend of mine from high school decided to move into the college and able to stay and got my grades up to, a, will say a passing level where I was able to complete the associate's degree there. And finally, uh, I transferred to Brockport State SUNY school here in, in upstate New York. And I finally knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a physical education teacher like my two heroes in high school, uh, Mr. Butts and Mr. Johnson. Once I reached Brockport, I had no trouble with grades, 4.0. Uh, I did play soccer there. Um, I met my wife there, which is probably the biggest blessing in, in my world, 35 years together this year uh, as a couple, as married couple. In, uh... So from Brockport, um, I did student teaching at a, a small uh, town called Geneseo, which also had a SUNY school in it. And I got lucky enough to get placed in that school for my student teaching. And there was a gentleman by the name of Ted Bondi there. Ted was highly involved in the local chapter of the New York State AAA, what's called Chapter 5. And he introduced me to the professional side of being not only a coach, but an athletic director. And so that was my first um, introduction to that. Uh, I taught at Geneseo, loved it. I taught elementary, middle school, high school, coached three sports. Um, and then at one point I got a call from the superintendent at the end of a summer and I just run a soccer camp. So I thought for sure I'd done something wrong, you know, <laughs> something had gone bad and come to find out they were looking through the file and saw that I'd taken some administrative classes and asked me if I wanted to be a, a TOSA a teacher on special assignment, become the assistant principal for the middle school, high school and the athletic director. Well, being a dummy, I said yes, because I thought that, oh, well, that's a great thing. You know, I, I could do something different. They said I could still coach. Um, of course, I had no clue what that was going to entail. Um, I was a new father uh, as of that um, March of that same year, and we had opened a new business around December. So you have to imagine this. I'm the athletic director. I'm the assistant principal for the middle school, high school a new dad and open a new business. I was good at nothing, literally nothing. And I was still, oh, I was still trying to coach three, two sports at the time. Uh, so my wife literally slapped me in the head, hey, something's got to give here. Um, I interviewed for the job that I spent the remainder of my career in at Penfield. Um, and it was, a, it was one of those mid-year openings, Hutch. So yeah. it was the situation where um, I thought, well, I'll go do these interviews and I'll get some practice because I hadn't had an interview in 13 years and I'll get through those, get some, you know, a good feeling for it. And then when June comes around and the real positions open up, 
Well, I, I interviewed with three people um, and I got a call back and I thought, how nice was that? I got a call back. Uh, next interview was with 17 people from the community and the school. And you could tell there was a lot of interest in this district about finding the right person. I went there and I happened to be sick. I happened to have, um, I, I don't know, strep throat or something. And every time they asked me a question, my throat would tighten up and I'd start coughing. Well, they, they were so kind of me offering me water. And I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I just don't know the answer to the question. I need to buy a little time here. They all thought that was funny. You know, you get that first connection with people. And I had decided before I went there, I wasn't going to answer any question the way I thought they wanted to hear it. I was going to answer it from the heart because I would never want to end up someplace where, you know, it wasn't the right fit. Sure enough, get a call back. And this time it's just with the superintendent. Her name was Susan Gray. And she had a big influence on me as well. And, uh, I became her choice. And I remember covering the receiver when they called me to offer me the job. And I called my wife to tell her and she said, well, did you accept it? And I said, no, I was too nervous. I told them I needed to talk to you first. <laughs> and so I ended up calling them back. Uh, I never looked back. That was the best decision of, of my career. Um, so I Rowe County Public High School Athletic Association, where I'm lucky enough to be immediately uh, mentored by Denny Freeze. Now, Denny Freeze, okay. as you know, past president, um, uh, National Association, past president of the State Association. Denny takes me under his wing right away, as most leaders do. They identify somebody, and he has this way of making you volunteer, even though you you didn't want to. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I, I got voluntold. Uh, no, he, he just had this magical influence over me and many others, by the way. And uh, I never wanted to disappoint Denny. And he always pointed me in a direction, but never pushed me in a direction. And I soon became highly involved in not only Chapter 5, but the New York State AAA, where I eventually served as president of that association. And I'm, I'm proud to say I'm going to be inducted into their Hall of Fame in March. Uh, which I just found out while I was on the trail, actually. So it was pretty cool. Um, and through that, I started going to the Summer Institute in Cape Cod. Uh, 2004, I think, was the first year. Now, I've attended every single one. And this summer will be the first time I have to miss because I'm hiking. But um, so I started going there. I've taken all but maybe three or four of the courses that are offered by the NIAAA. And uh, I don't know if you remember Walter Sargent. You probably I, do. Walt's Walt a real good friend of mine. I know, well, parenthetically. So Walt, Walt is hosting the NEDC in 2004 Great. At, uh, at Oceanside. And so actually, Ocean. so, so I'm there. I think Holly's there, a bunch of us. So I, have, I actually taught at the very first uh, summer summit gotcha. that was there. Yeah. Well, anyways, you know, Walter was there and Denny and they ran it for 10 years and they, I will say they were, they were done. They, they'd done their part and Steve Young, who I know, you know, mm -hmm. and myself we just loved the summer suit. We didn't want it to die on the vine. So we took it over. And so we've run it for the last eight years. Um, and I just talked to Steve today um, and it is going to take place this summer live. We had to cancel last summer due to, uh, COVID-19, but it's going to be June 27th through the 30th, Hutch. I know you asked me this interview today. It's June 27th to the 30th. Um, registration is open. Um, it is at the Section 1 
uh, .org website, and you can register through Family ID. Um, as part of the Summer Institute, uh, offering 15 courses and the CAA exam, just as we have always done. And um, I know that Steve uh, changed up some of the courses from last summer. We've always tried to be on the cutting edge, offering the new classes that are mm -hmm. offered. We get a lot of, um, I'll say, repeat customers at the Cape. And again, it's on Cape Cod and Brewster, sure. Mass. Um, we, we get a lot of repeat customers for two reasons. One, we, the Institute uh, offers a lot of really uh, new courses. So even the person that's been there every year can take courses. The second thing is, is that we've always focused on family first there. So when you come, we want you to bring your family. We run a reception that's open to families. We run a bocce tournament there. Um, we offer um, information for the family on where to go when they're not in classes. We've been smart enough to offer three classes in the morning and two in the afternoon because we noticed that a lot of the attendance goes down in the afternoon. It's awful hard to look out a window and see that blue, blue ocean and white, white beach and want Absolutely. to be in class. I don't, I don't care if Lee Green and, and Lee had taught many, many times there. But um, we get a lot of repeat customers. And as you know, and you've talked to me about coming, uh, I don't have to worry about asking instructors to come. I got yeah. people asking me when to the Cape. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's almost a problem in itself because you want to – you want to um, give everyone an opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, some, some people we say have right to first refusal, which right now is, is Holly um, Farnese. Holly's been there every year. Lee, Lee was Lee. one of those people. Yep, but Lee has told us physically the site is not conducive to his condition. And so it makes it difficult for him. So, but, you know, always come in and always offer to do it uh, for free. Gary Stevens. I mean, all great, great people have uh, been yourself. So, I mean, it's always an all-star cast. Quite often, we also get a lot of internationals, maybe three to five people uh, from international schools that want to come in from all over the world. And that always adds a nice flavor. And that's, I, I would say that's impressive because like you say, I think the first one was 2004. So this has got to be what? The 15th, 16th year, 17th, maybe something like that. And uh, and so you won't be there. So I guess Steve's shouldering the load because you'll be somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania, I'm assuming, or or maybe <laughs> into New York by the time this happens, depending on well, how far he, you've traveled. He, he a couple of people from Section 1. Corey Parker's one name that I, I can remember. And I apologize to the other gentleman. I can't think of it right now. But, um, you know, people are always going to step up to help with the Summer Institute and uh, – and so Steve does have people who are going to help him with everything from registration to setting up the, the rooms for courses, to introducing the instructor, to collecting the surveys at the end, all the stuff that goes along with that. There's a lot of, a lot of work that goes into uh, running a summer institute. Um, oh, it no seems question. like a great thing, but um, today, Hutch, I was, I only hiked nine miles today. And uh, as I was thinking about this interview, I was thinking about the summer institute and uh, we average right around 55 to 60 people a year. And that's and a if, good number. If I, that's, you, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And we've had as high as 83 there. But if I use that number of 50 and let's say we've done it 20 years, that's a thousand directors, right? Over mm -hmm. that time. And each of those people average three courses per attendance. Matter of fact, we had to make it so that they would 
minimally take two because people were just coming and taking one and we'd and never just, see them again. Yeah, exactly. But if you, that, that's 3,000 LTI courses having been taken by athletic administrators. And it's probably much higher than that because there's some people that come and take four and five courses. Um, a countless number of people who've received their certification there, uh, their CAA taking the exam there. So that probably is the big feel good about how many how many fellow directors we've served in that time. And to boot with what directors do, we've offered them time with their family. And it's been an important part of what we've done. Yeah, and that's got to be a big seller. I think, uh, you know, uh, Roger Brown from New York, I assume, correct? Retired now? Yeah. Well, see, that's, I had never known Roger. He was in my 790 class in 2004, and we've been friends ever since. That's where I first met him. Yeah, wonderful man. And contributing in New York State every year. He's been retired for 10 years, so. Yeah, exactly. I want to go back to something before we go on to the next topic. You mentioned very early on that you had seven siblings. Is that correct? Well, there's seven of us, including myself. Yes, there's seven of us. So uh, the question I have is if you have any specific stories, because I have eight siblings, there's nine in my family. So I, I think generally the athletic directors that listen to this, probably most of them aren't going to have you know, seven or eight brothers or sisters for that matter. Uh, anything that, uh, I guess, athletically as you were growing, I mean, I would think, how many brothers do you have? Well, I, I had one, unfortunately, my, my only brother has passed away at this point. Um, uh, so I, 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 he and I did a lot together, probably got in a lot of trouble together. Things I won't talk about here, but, sure. <laughs> um, you know, have, having five sisters, four of them older, um, you know, we were farm associated family and, and we were also Catholic. And if you know anything about Catholics, my parents were practicing Catholics. And so they were just trying to have a hired man. And I was number five out of seven. And so um, <laughs> that was the first one that, that they go to the barn. You see, the girls never go to the barn hutch. The girls stayed in the house and did whatever was done there at that That's time. That's what I figured. And, uh, you know, nowadays that that would be completely different. So, um, you know, uh, I remember things like my parents always ha had us go to church on Sunday. Uh, one funny thing that happened to me is I was a, I was an altar boy and my parents with, with seven kids, we'd have to go to the later mass. So we'd go to a place called new Boston, which is about seven miles from my hometown, but it was a very rural, um, up in the woods type of church, but it was a cool place. Mm -hmm. It had an elevated altar. And of course, uh, an altar boy, you have to wear the Cossack, the, the gown that comes over. Yeah. Well, I was just a little duffer and the Cossack was always too big for me. And I, I remember this like it was yesterday because my mother was mortified. I'm, <laughs> I, I came down to uh, get the offer from the adults that came from the back of the church, right? And I'm carrying the hosts. And as I went to step up the staircase, I stepped on the front of my Cossack. And so I trip myself and the hosts go flying up in the air like snowflakes. The place erupts. The priest who took pity of the family for years um, was mortified. <laughs> if, he, if he was angry, he didn't beat me, but he was, he was unhappy with me. And I remember my poor mom after that church mass just being you know, beside herself. And um, just simple, simple little things like that that come to mind. Um, 
two sisters who were trying to learn how to smoke cigarettes and they had a Ford Falcon and uh, they were smoking one a cigarette through the window. Well, the cigarette flies in the back window. Now, if you remember, the old cars used to have those seats that were made out of straw. Uh-huh. Remember how the, the bedding or the, the cushion? Well, the seats started smoking. They keep coming in the house to get glass walking out and dumping. Of course, it's smoldering. My two oldest sisters, uh, Chris and Jess, drove that Falcon all the way to Watertown, which was 22 miles, to tell my dad the car was on fire. And <laughs> all because they didn't want to tell my mom. Just goofy stuff like that. That you know, this comes Okay, to so mind. You, but, uh, growing up in the large. Yeah, you mentioned. Uh, oh, sorry, I didn't want to interrupt. No, I'm good. I, I okay. could tell stories all day long. Like well, that. You, so you mentioned Watertown. It's strange. I know where Watertown is just because it's across the, uh, huh? well, it's across the river from Ontario where I uh, served a mission when I was younger. And, uh, okay, yeah. and well, I, and I know where Watertown is because if you're familiar with uh, Harry Chapin, the singer at all, one of his songs takes place. There. Oh yeah. And so obviously yeah. Penfield is yeah. somewhere close to, Watertown that so I'm I'm assuming you're between you're north of Syracuse and west of Syracuse but east of Rochester then obviously in that neighborhood of the well, where I where I was near Watertown but now I live in western New York between Syracuse and Buffalo right up on Lake Ontario at Rochester um okay, and so Rochester is the home of Cody, right Deer so Rocks you're above the Finger Lakes yep. then. That's where I, yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. Right. Beautiful well, that, area by the way. It's now, that, now that I have my geography straight. So let me ask you this, Pete, share with our listeners uh, here locally in Utah and across the U.S. Talk about your journey with the certification committee, because uh, it's so much different than let's say it was even 10 years ago. And I, so I know yeah, you, uh, Dr. Jake, who's also been a host on my show, and I've been on his show, but talk about to our, our ADs across the nation about the certification committee and how it's changed. Yeah, so I've almost been on the committee um, 10 years, and that sounds like an awful, terribly long time, but it's the way the the timing of that went. Typically, your right. service on a committee is a max of six years. Six. Um, and when I when I came on board, to, same as it is today, you'd fill out an application, typically that's sent out right around the conference, and you'd list um, any committees that you'd be interested in. Well, I I was interested in certification because I was the very first person in my area of the state to get their CAA and CMA. And so I wanted to bolster that. I just couldn't see why that wasn't more important to more people. And mainly it was because they didn't have the information. So I applied. I happened to have known Holly Farnese, who was at the acting secretary at the time. And, exactly. Um, with, yep. So I, I reached out to her personally, told her that I had a deep interest in it. And I was fortunate the secretary had a big influence at the time as well of, of who would get placed on a committee. Still does. And Roger Brown, who you mentioned, was mm -hmm. rolling off. And so section one rep, and I happened to be the only section one person that had applied. Uh, so I ended up on the committee. Um, 
I love the committee. I was intimidated by the committee, to be honest with you. And I think that's something that I've tried to work on as the chair, that when someone comes on that committee, hey, we all put our pants on one leg at a time, you know, eat milk and uh, or drink milk and eat cookies, all that good stuff. Um, long of it is I was mentored uh, strongly by Sherry Stice and Ed Lockwood. Now, the committee had never had a chair in its history. It had always been uh, Ed and Sherry coming from that leadership team, that PDA group. Right. Um, as I, I ran for the at-large position on the board, uh, the same year I was going to roll off, I chose not to try to double dip, and I did not apply for a vice chair because they had created vice chair. They hadn't created a chairperson spot yet. They right. started with the vice chair. Um, Lannis Robinson won that election. You know, I'm a great leader. And, and if, if you've ever run for an at-large, it's, it's kind of an emotional thing to go I, up there in front of all your people, do the you, speech, and run for the office of, of a volunteer and then not to be elected. Well, fortunately for me, Sherry uh, Spice thought enough of me to call me up and say, hey, we'd, we'd like you to consider being um, – our chair. And I was like, our chair. I said, don't we have vice chair? And she goes, well, I've talked to the leadership and they're going to allow us to have a chair. So, um, you know, I was taken back by that because I'm, well, well, I, how, how do you become the chair of the certification committee? Yeah. Long short of it is Tall Graf, Jake Lunch here were there as the vice chairs, two outstanding leaders unto themselves. Um, and we really did uh, at, in the beginning. Uh, Sherry has mentored me along with Ed, and we have developed uh, in the past four years that I've been there, three years, well, I guess this is four, uh, that committee has completely evolved. Uh, we've broken ceilings on every single thing from um, CAA uh, completions to CMA projects. We broke a thousand uh, recently on that. So uh, I take a lot of pride in that. Um, we've uh, facilitated uh, multiple sessions where we explain how to do your project. And I think there's a lot of intimidation about the CMA project. Uh, oral projects have become about a 50% of the total of CMA projects. Right. Uh, the committee now, in my, my eyes, functions more as a team. Where I remember when I first went there, we just you know, we went to our meeting and we got read the agenda and we left. And I was like, okay, well, what do I do? Uh, and what you do is, you know, you're reading PDFs all year long. Right. You were um, reading projects. Quite honestly, that's intimidating because if I get, you know, Hutch's project and I know he's put a year's worth of work into it, who am I to say that that project's not worthy? And so it's a little intimidating, believe it or not, to be on the other side of the, the project. Uh, I've really become comfortable with that other side. I've really felt like, um, and I've gotten several thank yous along with other committee members who do the same thing. You know, we've really helped guide people through that process. And we've done everything we can to take away the intimidation part and get people to understand it's just the doing part, you know. And with, uh, there's always a silver lining things in COVID last year gave a lot of athletic directors time to do professional development that they wouldn't have had. And so we saw an uptick in uh, both CAA and CMAA uh, completions. And I think our next challenge is to uh, carry that momentum and to 
to get the message out to that next generation of ADs as we see this big turnover in our country, across the country of, of um, I'll say, seasoned athletic directors moving on, these newer slash younger directors may not know the value of, you know, what, why would I get certified? I, I can do the job without it. And I think yeah. um, our responsibility is to, to educate them. Um, you know, you asked me questions that I'd tell a new AD and one of the things I do is I would say a new AD in the first four years, you're not identified by someone in your own league to be mentored by. Ask someone, seek someone out. Um, I constantly challenge uh, people who have their CMAs to, to reach out to those new people in their league and offer the help and invite them to go through the process. The other thing I would say to a new athletic director is Slow yourself down a bit and not try to change the world in a day. Take, take the time it takes to observe, watch, listen, um, and listen is very important. Hear what people are really saying. People want to be heard and then make an action plan. And when you make an action plan, don't do it in isolation. Make sure that you are inclusive of other people as because once you get them on board and it's their idea, it's so much easier to move things forward. Those would be two things that I would say to new athletic directors. Um, I, I love mentoring other people. I love helping people with their projects. So it's something I, I wish more of my peers were willing to do and thought about doing, to be honest with you. Perfect. Thanks for sharing that answer. Let me ask you this. I would have thought being outside that committee that the oral presentations for the CMA project would be more than 50%, but, but you're saying it's right about 50. I remember Utah's kind of proud of the fact that Jamie Sheets, who I know that you know, was, I think, the mm -hmm. guinea pig, for lack of a better word. Uh, but he was, well, I tell you what, after that, he was all over it. I think we've had maybe four or five CMAA since, and I think they all went the, the oral route because for them it worked and it was easy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would tell you that it's, it's, it's probably a little less than 50%, and it's not necessarily, I want to avoid the word easier. It's not easier. You're still different. writing the project. Right. You're, you're, it is you're presenting that same information that you had to write down. Now you're presenting it orally, and some people love to talk about stuff, so it's easier for them to do that. Other right. people love to write. Um, Funny, I don't know if you know Dr. Caleb Stoppel at all. I know who he he did. He's an outstanding leader. He he did his CMA project on a virtual presentation that he did, but he did it in a written style. So you know, here's a guy who's comfortable with virtual and and doing stuff presentation wise, but he chose to write his project out. So it's this weird hybrid, and I I really wanted him included in an article that's coming up for uh, the magazine that you'll see uh, the process from Lisa Jingris um, as well for written. Um, and so it's, it's, it's just, um, it's about 50% lunch. Fascinating. Well, let me get to what I've been dying to ask you is because <laughs> I have, well, I, I've heard about people that hike parts of the Appalachia trail or, they, they spend a month and they go a couple of hundred miles, but I, I do not know anyone. You're, you were going to be the first one 
who is going to hike the actual trail and obviously to live and tell about it. My question is, I, I'm, I'm sure that you've hiked sections of it before, but what, why this desire now to hike the trail once you've retired from being an active athletic director? Well, I, I started out by section hiking. Section hiking is doing um, pieces of the trail. And I had chosen originally to start down in Georgia and I would take my spring breaks that we'd all get mm -hmm. and I would go do a hundred mile section. I was able to do that for four years and I was going to do it last year, but with COVID, they were asking people to stay off the trail and, you know, not knowing I didn't go. Yeah. Um, the rationale for doing it when I rationale for doing it when I retired was I always wanted to through hike the trail, but you can't through hike when you're working. Uh, so yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it, it's going to take anywhere from five to six months to complete an average hike. Um, my goal was to finish, um, around the end of August, first week of September, which meant I need to, um, average from my start date, which was March 14th. I needed to average 14 miles a day, including days that I didn't hike. So, you know, on a day I'm not hiking, I've got to take those miles and average them into another day. Um, right. I was doing some math in my tent last night how close I am and I'm, I'm very close to being on target as far as my mileage where I am today and, and finishing on those days. Uh, what I really would need to do is I've got to average about 100 miles a week now over a seven day period. Now I can do whatever number of miles I want on any of those seven days, including zero, but the, the average has got to be right around 100 a week in order okay. to make my timeline. And I want, I want to enjoy the trip. I'm, I'm here at one of the nicest hostels on the whole uh, trail. It's, it's um, a rustic log cabin with, uh, you know, traditional chinking on the outside. And mm -hmm. they grow all their own vegetables and they make a meal tonight. Um, I'm in a single room, which is rare. Um, usually I sleep in a bunkhouse with anywhere from six to 10 people and uh, sleep is hard to come by, believe it or not, snoring and burping yeah, and all I'm the sure. other bodily snoring and getting up all night. Sure. And, I understand that. Yeah. Then uh, the things that you look forward to, um, and it may, this is going to sound gross and funny, a shower. I took a shower today. First time in six days I had a shower. Um, sitting on a regular toilet are things that come to mind. Yeah. Uh, I did my laundry for time in six days. So I, I know this sounds bad, but imagine you're only carrying two pair of underwear and you're, you're hiking for six days. That math does not work out. Yeah. <laughs> so most of the times, by the time I make it to the, uh, into town or into the hostel, uh, most of my clothes could probably walk in on their own, uh, mm. and make it into the hostel without me. So, and, and you can smell a hiker from a good distance away. Uh, and I if can usually tell wind. a through hiker from a day hiker, if you're downwind, because yeah. a day hiker, you can still smell detergent on, on their clothes. <laughs> now I did my laundry today. No matter how clean my laundry is five minutes after I put it on, it smells like I haven't taken a bath in a week. So it's just what it is. <laughs> because you haven't. Okay. Now, let me ask you this. I had no idea not having been on the trail. I, 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 you and I have talked before. I've hiked quite a bit in national parks out west here, but I've never hiked anything like the AT. But there's, there's trail names for people, I guess, 
are they just through hikers that have the trail names or even the, the section hikers have trail names? Well, the history on trail name is this. Um, you, you can choose to give yourself a trail name, but it's not very common. Most of the time you earn a trail name. Okay. Um, if you section hike and you've done a lot of miles, there's a good chance you've gotten a name. Most of the time, the name comes from something you've either done or not done. Um, you know, uh, it's just goofy stuff. My trail name is Rollon. And I'm going to tell you a quick history on Rollon. When I, okay, so I, I originally did not have a trail name. My trail name just Pete. And uh, I, I was section hiking a few years back, and I was coming into an area called Fontana dam area and this it's a very long steady sometimes steep downhill and the person i was hiking with at the time uh their name was compass and it had to do with them trying to find their way in life and blah 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 well that person said to me well why don't you be rolling and i said rolling yeah I, I like rolling down these hills and i was like oh man i like that rolling that sounds great I'll, i'm gonna go with that well I, I went with that and i hiked to um Klingman's Dome that year. So that's the highest point on the AT. It's like 6,662 feet. Mm. And the next year I start at Klingman's Dome and I'm going to hike to Hot Springs, just under a hundred miles. And I end up hiking with this gentleman um, from Southern Georgia. And he has a heavy Southern draw. And he could not say Roland. He called me Roland. Roll on. Roll on. <laughs> Everybody around us thought my trail name was Roll on. So, so I ended up I ended up going with Roll on. And uh, my vlog, if anybody's interested in following, is rolling, R-O-L-L-I-N-G, on the AT 2021. And I, uh, I post the video each day. I know you've been watching because I see a comment. And I, yes. I love the fact that you send me the the music themes that's your that's your part in that and so, i've got uh, one i'm just you know, ready to put on for today when you left the uh it was hurricane something so i've i've got something for you oh yeah so uh yeah i like the five i've i've walked well, 500 miles i will walk 500 more i got yeah. that one too so <laughs> i knew that I, I knew you'd get a laugh out of that one yeah, I do enjoy the feedback from you. I very much appreciate it. And uh, okay. the support on the trail is important, you know, so. So if they, if they want to go to YouTube, which is where I watch yours uh, every day or every other day, it's just roll on. It's, it's rolling, rolling on the AT. Roll 2021. Yeah. And so they can, they yep. can access it that way. Yep, and I've just uploaded uh, five more episodes today. Um, I release them slowly, so the the episodes that you're seeing are days behind where I actually am. And as I sit here in this comfy chair right now, I'm at mile 625, uh, traveling north out of uh, 2,193 miles that need to be done. So, yeah, because I just barely gave you, I just barely gave you the. Uh... The I would walk 500 miles song here a couple of days ago, and now you're already up to 625, and it hasn't been a week. So I get yeah, that. Yeah. Listen, I understand that uh, Hikers Midnight's coming up about seven o'clock your time, which is pretty quick. 
So let me just yep. finish up with this question. What question should I have asked you that I failed to ask you? Hmm, that's a good one. Well, because your show's mostly about athletic administration, um, I, I, and I'm lucky enough, fortunate enough to be the national certification chair, I, I wish that you might have asked me, why should I get certified? Okay, tell, tell our audience why they should be certified, because that's a, that's a great question, and I know that's a question on a lot of the minds of the people in Utah and across the nation. You know, I, I, I'm going to screw this quote up, but I think it was Billy Graham that said, a coach will influence a, uh, more people in one season than most people do in a lifetime. And so now if you take that a step further and you talk about an athletic director and say you take uh, someone like me who had a, a large suburban school and you had 140 staff, um, if I can influence positively 140 people, just think of the the math on that, of how those people could influence. I, I don't think I'd want to go to a doctor that wasn't certified. I don't want to take my car to a technician that doesn't have, uh, you know, a certification in, in working on stuff safety-wise. I can't imagine why we as professionals, as athletic administrators, would not want to be certified in the profession that we've chosen. In truth, a district could take anyone off the street and give them a blessing, say, hey, you're the new athletic director. You and I both know that that is a guarantee for failure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and the NIAAA is um, programs for athletic directors by athletic directors. And so the information that are included in the courses that we offer are, are timely, they're pertinent to what's going on in society at this time, they are um, constantly uh, updated to be uh, pertinent to what we're doing in our day, and um, well, you can take all those courses and not get certified, why wouldn't you become a certified athletic administrator? And even then, because we're all competitive people, we live in the competitive world. Why would you want to stop at, I got, I made the team. Why wouldn't you want to be a starter and, and go get your CMAA, your certified master athletic administrator? And uh, when the NIAAA sends you their, the letter congratulating you on that certification, they, they say that you have now become part of an exclusive group. And it's a true statement because it's people who have gone above and beyond what's required of them, typically by any state. And they've done it because they want to serve their community and their programs in the best way they can. And being certified is, is one surefire way to do that. Well said. I couldn't have said it better myself. So thank you for that answer. That wraps it up for another edition of the UI AAA Connection. Once again, our host, or not our host, our guest today has been Pete Shambo the certification chair for the NIAAA and current hiker on the Appalachian Trail. Pete, thanks for being with us today. Hutch, thank you for having me so much and thanks for reaching out and continuing to support me on my hike. It's, it's, really, it's really fun to have that happen. Thank you.